Hello. Welcome to this episode of Epri Current. I'm your co-host, Bill Florence. Now, before we get into today's topic, let me read something to you. Let me know what you think about this. Today, we're diving into the remarkable world of artificial intelligence and language technology. ChatGPT has taken the tech world by storm, demonstrating its ability to generate human-like text and engage in meaningful conversations on a wide range of topics. Join us as we peel back the layers of this groundbreaking technology, exploring its creation, applications, and the endless possibilities it offers. Now, that intro was created by ChatGPT, so I hope it sounded somewhat natural, but uh, our experts today are going to maybe help us uh, learn a little bit more about how all of this works and shed some more light on this. I'm joined today by two, like I said, two great experts in this area, Christine Lee and Leah Bush. Ladies, welcome very much. Christine, why don't you start by introducing yourself, please? Thanks for having me here. My name is Christine Lee, and I'm a senior technical leader in our nuclear sector. In our data-driven decision-making program, I manage data science projects and software applications, and I'm happy to be here today to talk about our cross-collaboration. Leah? Sure. My name is Leah Bosch. Uh, I'm also a senior tech leader, but with the generation sector, um, I'll lead data science projects across the sector, um, and sometimes cross-sector work, like the one we're talking about today. So let's begin with an overview. What is ChatGPT and what is it not? Sure. So um, ChatGPT is a commercially available chatbot that was released last year by OpenAI. It's powered by a large language model. What it can do is it's really good at mimicking human conversation, but it's not a replacement for a subject matter expert or a developer, nor is it uh, aware of your data security or legal policies. Yeah, it also is not an encyclopedia. So I think that's one, it is the conversational tool that is working off of a database that runs in the background and that has a limited knowledge of the world around it. Everything else it will make up. Does chat GPT stand for anything or do the letters mean anything? Yeah, so the GPT and chat GPT, uh, the G is for generative, which means it's creating something, in this case, chat. The P stands for pre-chained, which means that there are these probabilistic models that underline it and that help predict what word gets generated next based on really large data sets, such as scraping the internet. And then transformer simply refers to the type of model that the large language model um, operates with. So there's that, that, that phrase, large language models. And that's really what ChatGPT and others um, that are similar to it are all about. What, is, what does it mean? What, is, what does large language model actually mean? A large language model is a model that got trained on a large data set um, from natural communications, um, news reports, Wikipedia pages, all of that. It does not learn the knowledge that is embedded into these sources, but it learns the semantics, how we utilize words. What is the probability that one certain word follows another one? So that's what a large language makes a large language model. And the um, large comes from the size of the model that runs in the background. So how many parameters um, are running in the math in the background. Now, there, from my understanding, is that there are maybe 
I don't say maybe sort of different sort of ways that AI is utilized with these models. And one of them is like a generative model. Is that correct? And then the other one is like a discriminate model. Could you explain, go into a little more detail about what that and what that means? Um, so there's a first part where you ingest all your data. Um, so we're talking about decoder and encoder um, models in our data set. And these ones distinguish between ingesting knowledge and taking the input of our question, figuring out where in the data set they have something similar they can refer to, and then handing it over to the so-called decoder model, the generative part that then turns that into one wonderful text. And depending on how you set your parameters, you can have a very um, creative text where you have something that is very close to the original source that um, the encoder found. Um, to add on to what Leah said, she was talking about the generative aspect of artificial intelligence, and this is to deal with natural language processing, how it can use words and create new texts. That's contrasted with um, what you had asked us also about, which is discriminative AI and discriminative AI that covers the realm of classical machine learning and Machine learning and statistics, and EPRI has been doing a lot of research in this for the past 15 plus years. So an example of discriminative AI would be um, tasks that are really algorithmic and discrete with your data. So tasks like word count, keywords, specific topics you know, that we'll be discussing today, whereas generative AI can do a lot of the summarization tasks or create new summaries of things. I'm going to guess that at least chat GPT that I was using uh, to help create that intro was maybe more of the generative sort. And certainly the dial was set, turned up on creative <laughs> because it did it, uh, chat GPT. I didn't read the parts where it thought very highly of itself as being groundbreaking and, and this sort of stuff. So it was uh, definitely, uh, it definitely had a, um, a personality associated with it for that. But um, you said, I, so I was just, you know, my use of chat GPT was for, you know, more sort of just play and just for a casual use. But what are, uh, on a more serious note, what are maybe some sort of energy industry uses, both either like that are uh, where it's being, where chat GPT or these large language models are being used today? And then maybe what do you see coming up down the road? So the first use for us as developers is it actually helps write code. So if we're coding, um, we're starting to utilize ChatGPT or tools like it more and more to help us um, gather code quickly. For our industry uh, as a whole, there's a bunch. There's a lot of um, use around knowledge transfer because it can capture and reproduce knowledge. There's also summarizing or analyzing data. There is help um, possible in regulatory text process. People also have to write reports. It can help overcome writer's block <laughs> by giving you some initial uh, ideas. It can help with cybersecurity, cybersecurity analysis and automations. In general, automating tasks, call center automation. There's one uh, use case where we want to look at how we can utilize it to uh, have help work workers in the field so they don't have to stand in the field with an iPad and try to figure out how to fill stuff out, but just do a voice recording. And then the tool can take that voice recording, um, transcribe it, and move it into a form. 
Sure. Christine, anything else to add to that or? Really just that this, you know, as Leah said, it can really help overcome writer's block and writer's block in any number of these areas. You know, we both know how frustrating it can be to try to code on your own sometimes and look up resources online. And or if you need to switch between different programming languages, it's also really good for helping translate that because programming languages are really discrete. And so there's a direct translation between the two. But really, you know, I think the power here, as Leo was saying, is that it can be a tool that can assist people with getting over a particular barrier. So, for example, for the field work, it's for the field work or if you're an operator at a transmission in a transmission capacity, it would be nice to have something that can help them um, either enter information easier or be able to recall information easier. You know, I can certainly attest to it as being helpful in, in addressing writer's block because I have used it uh, as a means of perhaps creating some tweets or posts for LinkedIn. And it does a good job on coming back with some, uh, some really nicely done text. It's not perfect and I have to tweak it, but it's, it's been very, very helpful with that. We've, so we've talked about chat GPT and, and as you mentioned, it's a, commercial product. There are other commercial products out there similar to or competitors to ChatGPT. Is that correct? Yes. There's an entire menagerie of them, and I feel like a new one comes out every two weeks. <laughs> I just saw someplace that um, actually was incorporating a chat, or excuse me, a large language model uh, a component into, um, maybe it was, a, um, oh gosh, uh, Snapchat. I think was incorporating something into to that. So, I mean, it's being used in a lot of different and unique ways, it seems like. There's also a, a deriv- derivative of LLMs um, that help you create images out of text. So you can give it cues and it'll create an image for use like Dolly um, by OpenAI. But there's um, multiple tools out there. And I know that there's some for, for your phone as well. Um, that can help you create logos, um, new images, um, without having to go and take photos of things. Now tell us a little bit about sort of EPRI's work in this area and maybe the work that it's done in the past and, and what's going on uh, now, specifically in this chat GPT LLM space. Um, what, um, what's happening currently with, from an EPRI perspective? Sure. So Leah and I have been working together for the past couple months to explore the different options that we have. You know, as you'd asked us, there are a couple other models out there besides ChatGPT that would be of interest to us. Um, We recently published a white paper on our initial findings at the end of April, and I think somewhere we can put the link to that. Um, But basically what we did was a cross-sector survey that we conducted for use case generation and at least a dozen energy industry Uh, interviews to see what kind of use cases would be best suited for this type of work. There are a lot of different attitudes out there in terms of the adoption. Some strictly limit the use of it. Others are creating extensive use guides and playbooks. Um, But going forward, what we're going to be doing is, of all the models that we've been exploring, we're going to be doing a comparison of cloud-hosted versus on-prem models. So on-premise models, ones that are private and that we can have more control over. It's the data set or the, any sort of data sets that are used for these different models. I mean, is that an important component as well? 
Yes, it can be. Um, it helps prevent the model from hallucinating too much, um, which in the scientific context is an important... Um, what, what does that mean, hallucinating? <laughs> it's making up facts. This is, I'm, I'm kind of scared thinking that you know, artificial intelligence is, is hallucinating. What, what does that yeah. mean, Leah? So the, 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 the generative part of an LLM likes to make up facts when it's running out of real facts. And um, so you will probably have seen reports about um, the tool making up people's life stories that are completely fake or pretending someone's dead already um, while the person is sitting in front of the computer and frantically typing in, no, I'm alive. Um, the model doesn't realize that. <laughs> That's a part of communication. It, it cannot really ingest either. Um <laughs> So that's that's called hallucinations because the generative part of the model will start making up facts if it cannot find facts in its database. And for example, the ChatGPT database, as far as I know, only um, includes the year 2021. So everything that happened last year is won't be in there. And um, that's the part that I meant with the uh lack of encyclopedic knowledge. It does not know, it doesn't read the news every day. Um, and then it starts to uh, fantasize. And because the scientific database it is found is grounded on is very small, it doesn't know a lot of scientific facts and that's why it's not great at math either. It doesn't understand those rules. It hasn't learned them. They're not making up a large part of its database and therefore it struggles. And so if we take data and fine tune the model on it and so, so that it learns the semantics of scientific language, but also give it a database to find facts in, um, it helps make the model more accurate. It sounds like that is uh, maybe a it's inability to uh, maybe learn some of those rules, particularly with, like with math and stuff. It may be a question of training. And then so is that something that I mean, every is looking at, or is that, in, I guess, the training aspects of, of, of the, you know, if you're looking at best practices or best ways of moving forward with the training for these large language models? Oh, yeah, definitely. There's different ways that you can train a model, such as grounding it in, in scientific, you know, scientific papers and works. There's also fine tuning a model where you can teach it how to speak more in the lingo of what you're looking for. We're doing both. Um, we've assembled a large data set consisting of all of EPRI's publicly available documents, which is 18,000 um, that we have that um, we utilize as a database for our models that we run on premise. We got to see if we are allowed to use them to fine tune an open AI model as well and see if that, how that performs against that. But there's data security concerns uh, in handing our data over to someone. I'm just curious. I mean, are there any global standards that are driving, I guess, the, the training or of, of these large language models? Yeah, the community has settled on a couple standards, except for example, for the vector databases that you create out of your documents as the founding uh, database for your LLMs. But um, on the security side, there's different 
viewpoints on how to keep these now data sets secure and the rules and regulations around that. That's policymakers. That's not the AI community as as its own. They they've done their own kind of standards. They're trying to follow to ensure that there's no maluse of the tools, but um, for example, the EU has come out with regulation around data use and uh, data ownership. And are those standards then being used to evaluate maybe the effectiveness or the, the, the um, well, really the effectiveness of these large language models? So there's a, a set of metrics and benchmarks available um, run coming out of the AI community um, that are utilized for evaluating the different models against each other and benchmarking them, trying to figure out where they are uh, in comparison to each other, um, depending on use of certain language or if they can pass certain tests, um, as in like the patent bar or the bar in general, the, the legal bar, exam here in the U.S., stuff like that, or, or how they perform in translating from one language into another. So there's, depending on what you're looking at, you would utilize other different benchmarks for that. There's also general scores that you're looking at, um, like how good, um, how close the answers are to your ground truth answers, things like that. Yeah, so to add to what Leah's saying, a lot of these benchmarking benchmarking metrics, some of them are very word-based, as in strict, do the exact words that you have in your answer match your ground truth, right? Some of them are more semantically based, so it can be that even if your ground truth is a specific sentence of words, you could have an answer that is similar to it, say like using, you know, other adjectives or whatnot to describe whatever's in the sentence, whereas there are also semantic metrics that really just take into account synonyms that are available to you. Um, you know, in addition to these metrics of just seeing how well these models can benchmark against each other, another thing I wanted to bring up was reproducibility. So one of the things that we look at in testing and evaluating these models is how often does it actually give the same answer when you ask it the same question a hundred times? That's that's one thing that we're looking at in terms of exploring the hallucination. How does it answer the same question a hundred times? Because again, like we talked earlier, these are generative models and they're based on probability. So every single time there's going to be a little bit of a different answer. Well, this is certainly a fascinating subject and it is changing, changing so quickly. And I really appreciate both of you joining us today to help shed some light on, on, on this issue. That's it for this episode of Epicurrent. Current. I'm your co-host, Bill Florence. We'll see you next time. If you like today's show, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast and feel free to share the podcast with your colleagues and friends. For more information about EPRI, please visit our website at www.epri.com. And don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at EPRI News. Together, we are shaping the future of energy.